You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, Covenant Hope Church. Really good to be here. It's about time Cody invited me to preach to you all. I've only known him for 10 to 12 years, and Pastor Ryan as well. Your church is dear to us. I want you to know that. We pray for you often. You are a sister church to us, and we consider it a joy to be in partnership together in the gospel. Also, it's, uh, it's a joy to have you as a part of the Pillar Church Planning Network. We are now, oh, about 310 churches spread out all over the U.S. and now into many parts uh, in the world. And, and your partnership with us is planting, revitalizing, replanting churches everywhere. Just as your church was replanted to the glory of Christ and to get the gospel out to this much-needed community, um, you are a partner in seeing that happen all over the world. And it really is a joy, though I don't get to see you on a regular basis, to know that you are our sister church and you are cooperating together with us. First Samuel 15. Our kids are grown when we were raising them and they were little. <clears throat> we were trying to teach them obedience and to avoid rebellion and so my wife and I had this ritual when we uh, asked our children to obey us. And we said, when mommy or daddy asks you to do something, we want you to do it in three ways. We want you to obey right away. We want you to obey all the way. And we want you to obey in a cheerful way. So if you're under 10 years old, raise your hand. Yeah, I know some of you adults. <laughs> I'm in biological age. All right, all right, listen, children. When your mom or your dad asks you to obey, you are to obey right away. You are to obey all the way, and you are to obey in a cheerful way. Parents, can you say amen? amen. Now, it was important because we wanted our children to obey immediately. We didn't want them to delay their obedience. It was important that they obeyed all the way because we didn't want partial obedience. We wanted full obedience. And even though we were bigger and stronger than they, and we could force them, if necessary, to obey right away and all the way, we could not, we could not demand or enforce that they obey in a cheerful way or a loving way because you see, that's a matter of a person's heart. And now, adults, let me ask you, do you obey the Lord your God right away? Do you obey him all the way and do you obey him in a loving way? Do you do the same? You see, I, I can't really remember many times when my children, after 
giving them something to do that, that they came to me and they said, Daddy, we obeyed you right away, all the way, and, and we obeyed you because we love you. I think at times they did, but often they did not. Loving obedience. It's the only type of obedience that God accepts. I don't know if you knew that. Loving obedience is the only type of obedience that God will accept from you. And so now I have to ask you a question this morning before we dig into God's word. What do you do with the commands of Jesus on your life? Do you obey them right away, all the way, and in a loving way? What do you do with the commands of Jesus? Jesus commands you to love your enemies. Do you obey? Jesus commands you not to lust. Do you obey? Jesus commands that when someone offends you that you turn the other cheek. Do you do that right away? Do you do it all the way? Do you do it in a cheerful way? Because you love the Lord your God. There's something haunting that Jesus said in John 14. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And the reason why that haunts me, friends, is that after 50 years of being a follower of Jesus, over 20 years of being a shepherd of God's flock, I don't always do that. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. What does that mean when I don't keep his commands? What does that say about my love for Jesus? If loving obedience is the only type of obedience that God will accept, then are you giving him loving obedience? Now to that, we're going to hear a story from the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 15. And and let me give you just some help, because whenever you are studying or reading an Old Testament narrative, an Old Testament story, it's important that you understand that there's more going on than just the story in and of itself. As a matter of fact, any time that you hear of an Old Testament story, there are actually three stories that are taking place. It's sort of like watching the, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. There's always some immediate thing taking place. There's an immediate story, but there's always a bigger story taking place, right? There's always a more important story taking place within the the immediate story. And, and, And the very same thing is true with the stories that we find in the Old Testament. There's the immediate story. Today the story will be the challenge of King Saul and whether or not he will give loving obedience to the Lord his God. That's going to be the immediate story. But there's also a national story taking place. 
And the national story has to do with Israel and God's covenant relationship with his children, Israel. And this story will be uh, in the same sense. Will the nation of Israel and their kings give loving obedience to the Lord their God? In the old covenant, did God's people give loving obedience? (laughs) Did they do it right away, all the way, and in a cheerful way? Well, there's not only the immediate story and the national story, but most importantly, there is what I call the ultimate story. Anytime you're reading the Old Testament stories, there's actually something ultimate taking place because ultimately there will be a child of Mary, a son of God that will come as our covenant king. And the covenant king will have a relationship with us, the church. And in the ultimate story now, we have to ask the question, what will we do when our king asks us to obey? Will we be like Saul or like Israel? The first thing that we're going to learn is that our victories in life are not necessarily God's victories, and so I'm going to be reading 1 Samuel 15, the first 10 verses, and Samuel, the prophet, the last judge of Israel, most likely he is the one who writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and in retelling the story, he writes this, Samuel says to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, Israel. So now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witness what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Then Saul summoned the troops and he counted them at Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and he set up an ambush there in the wadi. He warned the Kenites. Since you showed kindness to all of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go and leave. Get away from the Amalekites or I'll sweep you away with them. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all of the worthless and unwanted things. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king. Samuel, the aged 
prophet, the last judge of Israel, probably 80 plus years old, was given the task to go to Saul, the king over Israel, and to reconcile a past offense. Now, it's important for you to know that God never wanted for Israel to have Saul as their king. God wanted to be the king of Israel. He didn't see the need for his people to have an earthly king. But the Israelites being stubborn, they wanted a king like everybody else. And so God offered them Saul, and they chose Saul to be their king. And as king, Saul immediately began to to gather an army, and he had some wonderful victories that are recorded in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. But now, now Samuel comes to Saul to seek vengeance upon a particularly wicked nation that had become an absolute stench in the nostrils of the Lord God. And something that had happened over 400 years earlier, it was now time for justice to be paid. And so Samuel says to King Saul, gather your army and go and annihilate the Amalekites. Now, you know, uh, in the land in which Israel now occupied, before, when it was Canaan land, there were all kinds of tribes and all kinds of nations that lived in the land. Well, on the southern border of Canaan, there was a, a particular evil people called the Amalekites, and they hated the Israelites, And there was a time when Moses was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites, but they did so in a very immoral and wicked way. You see, the Israelites would have been set up in a camp with tribes uh, out front and to the sides, flanking the sides. The soldiers of Israel then would be out front and around the flanks with the tabernacle in the middle and then just behind the tabernacle in, pro- in protecting uh, uh, with the tribes around them and the soldiers around them, uh, just behind them in the rear would have been the older Israelites and the women who were pregnant and the weak Israelites and the children and they always walked in the rear in order to be protected and if anyone were to engage Israel at war obviously they would have to face their soldiers but the Amalekites did something very immoral and they went all the way around Israel they didn't face the soldiers they began attacking the old people and the weak and the nursing moms and the children, and they killed them. And God never forgot it. He never forgot what happened. In Exodus 17, the Lord said to Moses, I want you to write this down, and you hand this off to Joshua, and he must hand it down from generation to generation, that I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses, as he was writing the last book, Deuteronomy, as he was getting ready to die, 
he wrote in Deuteronomy 25, one of the last things that he said, he said to Israel, when you cross over into the promised land, remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. So when the Lord your God gives you rest from all of your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is going to give you to possess as an inheritance, make sure that you blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Do not forget. Now that's the command. And now it's time for King Saul to obey. You see, this, this wasn't any ordinary war that Samuel had set King Saul and the army out to do or to accomplish. No, this is a holy war now. This is a matter of vengeance and justice. So when old Samuel shows up to sing King Saul's palace and, and he commands him to completely wipe out the Amalekites, that should not have surprised Saul at all. Listen to the Lord your God. Listen to the Lord Almighty. You must listen to the Lord of armies. Go and wipe them out, all of them. Don't you spare anything. No one was to profit from the plunder. This would be an act of severe justice and vengeance from a jealous God who had committed himself in a covenant bond with Israel to protect them, especially the weak and the vulnerable. This would be a holy war between God and his enemy. And people struggle with this. Why would God ask for Saul and Israel to kill children. If you recall in the lion and the witch in the wardrobe, as Lucy and Susan now are, are, are in Narnia and they're amazed at, at this, this new world and they, they meet the beavers and they're talking about Narnia with the beavers and, and, and all of the problems that Narnia is facing because of the evil witch. But then, but then Mrs. Beaver says, but, but things are changing the, the very fact that you're here means that things are changing. And as a matter of fact, it's even been rumored that the king has been aroused. That Aslan is on the prowl. And so Susan asked who the king was, to which Mrs. Beaver told her that the king is a lion. Aslan is a lion. He's the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I, I thought the king would be a man. Is he quite safe, she asked. I think I would feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, to which Mr. Beaver spoke, speaks up, and, and he says, safe? Why no, my dear. Of course he's not safe. But he's good, I tell you. King is good. Our God is good. Oh, he's not safe. Our God is just. He's not feeble. Our God is holy. 
And he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So at the Lord's command, Saul summons his vast army from all the tribes of Israel, and they attack the Amalekites from one end of the wilderness all the way down to Egypt. A complete victory. But Saul and the troops did not obey all the way, did they? They gave him partial obedience. Saul, with his half-hearted obedience, now had laid the sin that would lead to his downfall. Because partial obedience means no obedience to a righteous and a holy king. Now we are at verse 10. The word of the Lord again comes to Samuel and and says to Samuel, I regret that I had made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and he has not carried out my instructions. The old prophet was not happy with this at all. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. All night Samuel is grieving along with the Lord, grieving over the choice of Saul as king, grieving over their lack of obedience. And early in the morning, Verse 12, Samuel gets up and and he gets up to confront Saul. It was reported to Samuel, Saul, uh, uh, but it was reported to Samuel that Saul went to Carmel. Where he had gone, if you look at this, to set up a monument. What does it say? What does it say? For himself. Not for the Lord. Saul decided we're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate our victory. As a matter of fact, I think this is something that we should uh, create a memorial over. How about this? Let's create a memorial of me. (laughs) And then celebrate the victory. A monument for himself. Now note this. Because you're going to get puzzled near the end of the chapter. And you're going to wonder why the Lord refused to forgive Saul and the reason is because of this. It's because of his self-righteousness, not because of his true righteousness. Then he turned around and, and, and he went to Gilgal, verse 13. Finally, Samuel meets Saul and when he came to him, now here's Saul. I'm guessing in this moment uh, Saul might be a little curious as to why the old prophet walked uh, many miles to come and see him. Was it to celebrate the victory? Naively, Saul says to Samuel, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Verse 14. (laughs) Samuel replies, I love this. The old prophet has been walking mile after mile. He's probably not in a good mood. He's probably tired. But as he's making his way to the self-righteous monument and he meets the king, (laughs) he saw plunder from the Amalekites. 
King Saul says, hey, praise the Lord, what a great victory. I did everything that God told me to do. And so the old prophet says, yeah, about that. I mean, I know my ears are old. I could have swore I heard some as I was walking up this way. Did I hear that? I'm sure I'm hearing things. I'm an old man. I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive I heard a moo from a cow or two. Did, did I hear that? Did, did I hear the sound of sheep, goats, and cattle? Now what does Saul do? He knows he's in trouble. So he does the very same thing that Adam did in the Garden of Eden. He shifts the blame. He says it was the troops, you see, the troops. Didn't call them my troops, the troops. They brought these things from the Amalekites, and they spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle, get this, in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. Well, that's why you built a monument for yourself. The rest you re- we destroyed in, in Samuel. He's like, I'm too old for this. Stop, he says. Stop yourself. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night in Samuel. And Saul says, tell me. So Samuel continues. Although you once considered yourself unimportant... Haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? King Saul says, no, I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission that the Lord gave me, but, but I brought back King Agag. Now we've got new information. He didn't destroy everybody, did he? I brought back the king of Amalek for myself. And I completely destroyed everybody else. Now the troops, of course, yeah, they took sheep and goats and cattle from the plunder. They took the best of what was set apart for destruction because they, they wanted to make sacrifices to the Lord. Hmm. And so now Saul finds himself making excuses. And we see Saul as giving half-hearted, partial obedience to the Lord. To which now comes the point of this story. And we see it in verse 22 through verse 23. And it should be set apart in your Bible. So now Samuel, he he looks to King Saul and he makes this declaration. He says, Saul, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, 
To obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is like the sin of divination, of witchcraft. Defiance is like wickedness. It's like idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, now the Lord has rejected you as king. Does the Lord take pleasure in your half-hearted obedience? Does the Lord accept your partial obedience? Does the Lord accept the sacrifice from your self-righteousness? No, my friends. No. He sees it as wickedness. You might as well be enacting witchcraft. No. There's no amount of religion that can please the Lord if not it coming from a loyal and a loving heart. There's no amount of church going serving in the church that can please the Lord if it doesn't come from a loyal and a loving heart. It's not about your traditions. It's not about your family heritage. It's not about your reputation or your status. The Lord doesn't take pleasure in what you offer to him if they are offered with an impure heart or impure motives. Look, he says, to obey is better. To pay attention to the Lord's will is better. King Saul had failed miserably. And now he has to suffer the consequences of his disobedience. And in what we're going to see at the end of this story now is both the devastating result of, 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 of a, a partially obedient person. And then we're going to demand that our hope would lie in a greater king. A king who would eventually come and fully obey the Lord's commands for us. So look what happens. Again, Saul says to Samuel, verse 24, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words because I was afraid of the people. That's always been Saul's problem. Fear of man instead of fear of the Lord. So he, he says to Samuel, please, please, Samuel, forgive my sin and return with me back home so that I can worship the Lord. But Samuel says to Saul, I will not. You rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And the old prophet just turns and starts to walk away, and, and, and Saul won't let him go, and he grabs a hold of him. But in grabbing him, he grabs his robe, and he tears apart a portion of the robe. 
And Samuel says to him, verse 28, oh, this is a great symbol. Because the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today, note this, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. In just a few miles, a little town called Bethlehem, there was a very young shepherd boy named David, a neighbor of Saul. One better. That soon would be anointed king. It would be God this time who chooses the king for Israel, not the Israelites themselves. Furthermore, Samuel says to Saul, I can't help you. God's already told me, and I've got to obey. He's declared that this kingdom is no longer yours. This is the God of Israel who does not lie or change his mind. He is not like a man who changes his mind. Again, Saul says, I've sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people. If, if, if you don't come back with me, then they're all going to turn against me. Now he's terrified. Come back with me so I can bow and worship to the Lord. So Samuel, he actually goes back with Saul, but you see, the motives of Samuel were much different than the motives of Saul. Saul and Samuel go back to Saul's house. Verse 31, Saul bows to the Lord. Samuel doesn't worship because there's some unfinished business that needs to be done. Samuel, he says, bring me King Agag of Amalek. Bring him out here. I want to lay eyes on him. Agag comes out trembling, for he thought certainly the bitterness of death has come. I'm sure when they brought Agag out, shackled, and he saw King Saul and that old prophet, he was pretty terrified, probably pleading for his life. Okay, you guys win. I mean, I, I, I confess, great victory. You've won, you've conquered, you've demolished us. I'll just go back. I think there's a few things left. I'll just take my things and go. <laughs> Certainly the bitterness of death has come, yes. Samuel wasn't about to let him go, nor let him stay a prisoner Samuel declares, verse 33, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. There's Saul, disobedient. So here's the old judge of Israel. He takes out his blunt knife and he hacks Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. And then he returns a bloody mess. His robe torn and stained 
the blood of God's enemy. And he goes back home about 10 miles to Ramah, only 10 miles away. Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. And even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. He only mourned after him. And he and the Lord regretted that they had ever made Saul king over Israel. Two things. One, an analogy. When God asks you to completely root out sin in your life, he wants you to do it completely. He doesn't want for any of the little Amalekites to remain in your soul. You see, the problem with you getting rid of your sin is there are certain sins that you like. You don't mind to get, getting, getting rid of the worthless things. Those are easy, right? You're a Christian. You've given your life to Jesus. You know you're supposed to live for him. You know you're supposed to root out sin in your life. It's easy of the things you consider worthless, but what about the good plunder? What about the sins that you still admire? What about those little Amalekites? You've got a King Agag in your heart. You like to keep them around, don't you? Don't you? Yeah, you, you don't want to completely destroy him. There's some sinful plunder that you still like to contain here, and yet God would say, hack that sin to death. Mortify that sin. You have to understand when the Bible says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. God means that. If you are living according to the flesh, Romans 8, you must die. But if you are living according to the Spirit, you must put to death the deeds of your body. Then you will live. And if not, you are only giving God partial obedience by allowing little Agag to hang around in your hearts. Mm. Now, more importantly, how can we avoid the disobedience of Saul? So in the immediate story, it ends in a tragedy, doesn't it? For Saul, it's tragic. The kingdom that he had just been given had been ripped away from him and it would be given to another tragic for Saul. Now, what about for the nation of Israel? Uh, they would receive a better king. His name would be David. Would now Israel obey? No, my friends. No. No, even with David, the greater king, even that king would disobey. 
In the story of, of David's lineage from Samuel and his sons and onward and onward and onward would only be this downward spiral of kings and a nation that had a God and that God commanded them to obey him, but they failed and they accepted the idolatry and the self-righteousness and they thought being the people of God was enough, but it was not, it was not. And generation after generation after generation, they failed to give loving and loyal love to the Lord their God until finally God said, I'm done with you. I'm done with this covenant with you. It's over. And then God made a promise through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, I'm going to need a better covenant. And with this new covenant, it's going to demand a better king I'm going to need a king who will obey me right away, all the way, and in a loving way. And he will do it all the time. And so God sends himself, his son, to be our king. And Jesus, of course, is the better Saul. He's even the better David. And when he came to us, he obeyed God perfectly even to the point of death on the cross. His greatest display of obedience, bleeding and dying for us, in obedience to the will of God, that's our king. And, and as our king, our king also asks for our obedience to him. He wants our obedience. He wants for us to obey his commands. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says to us, blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and obey it. And this is what he said to any one of you who would be a follower of Jesus. If any one of you who would be a citizen of his kingdom if any uh, one of you who would say, I want to be a part of the ultimate story of Christ in his church, I want to be a part of that. Well, here's what he says to you. If you love me, you will keep my commands. How are you doing with that? Are you loving Jesus like Jesus love, the will of the Father, or are you at times, maybe too many times, more like King Saul? And Jesus commands us to repent of our sin and seek his kingdom, not the things of this world. How are you doing with that? More like Jesus or more like Saul? And Jesus commands us to love and pray for our enemies. How are you doing with that? More like Jesus or more like Saul? Jesus commands us to treat others in the way that we would be treated. How's it going with that? Doing that all the way? You treating everyone like you want to be treated? Jesus commands us to turn the other cheek when someone offends us. 
This past week, I was attacked on social media by someone I don't even know. I mean, it was mean. Something that could discredit my ministry. I don't even know him. How do I love that person that I don't even know who obviously hates me for reasons I don't even know? How do I pray for that person? I do it because I have a king who did it for me. And he didn't hesitate. Right away. And all the way. And in a loving way. Jesus commands us to let the light of the gospel shine through us, not to hide the gospel under a bushel. How are you doing with that? Jesus commands us to be glad when someone mocks us and persecutes us. He commands us never, ever to seek personal greatness. Only seek to be the least and the less. How are you doing with that? And Jesus commands us to lay down our life, to take up our cross, and to follow. And friends, like the story of Saul, partial obedience is no obedience. Our Lord wants us to love him enough that we obey him, and we obey him all the way. Now, the beauty of being a part of the ultimate story is we actually have the complete book that will help us to obey, and we have the Spirit of God who will give us the strength to do so, and the faith to do so. So now, the command is ours. If you love me, you will obey me. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, we do love you, but we love Jesus. But now it's time to confess that at times, too often, We're more like Saul than like Christ. Forgive us. And unlike Saul, whom you gave your spirit and you took away your spirit, you have promised us in the ultimate story in the new covenant, you will never take away your spirit. And we're so thankful. Thank you for the spirit of God. We need the spirit of God because we have to come again and again telling you how often we act in partial obedience, and we don't love you as we should. But Father, please help us, help us, even now, this week, to know the commands of Christ and to obey the commands of Christ, not for our own glory, but solely for your glory, the glory of your Son. And if there's someone here today who is not a follower of Jesus, Spirit of God, would you help them to see how 
damaging and deadly it is to try to live apart from Jesus being our King and our Savior. And Father, save them, I pray. And we'll give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.